Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, founders, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Ian Co, CEO and co-founder of Tonic, a synthetic data platform that's raised $45 million in funding. Ian, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thank you. Let's go ahead and just kick off with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, totally. I'm Ian Co, CEO and one of the founders of Tonic. Tonic is a synthetic data company with the mission of protecting data and boosting productivity. You can kind of think of us like an ETL for data protection. We make it easy to move and transform your data so it's both secure and available in the right environments for development, testing, or developing models. Today, we have hundreds of customers across industries using data generated by Tonic to build data-driven software and prep data for uh, training models. The reason they do this is they get all the value of production data without actually having to copy sensitive data around their organization. And so what we see is these teams, they author fewer defects, they ship faster, and uh, they have a much better security posture that works well with the rest of their organization. Checking out your LinkedIn, I see that you worked at Palantir for five years. So before we dive deeper into Tonic, I'd love to start there and just learn a bit more about Palantir and your experience there. So I'm sure you learned a ton from that experience, but what would be like one big takeaway that you learned while you were there? Yeah, so Tonic actually came out of some of the challenges that, you know, me and my co-founders saw at Palantir around the ability to have data where you want it to, you know, build software, develop models. You know, a lot of the work, as you know, at Palantir was sensitive, involving sensitive data. So often if we were having an issue, and this, this happened to me personally while I was there, if you were having an issue on site, you couldn't just send that data over the wire back to, you know, Palo Alto where uh, maybe someone, you know, a developer was sitting. And so we had to come up with, you know, ways to have that conversation. And one of the solutions were, were sort of, I would say, you know, the earliest versions of what you might call synthetic data, where you make data that looks like, you know, some of the challenges that you're seeing and uh, try to get that over to developers so they can help solve the problem. Take us back to the founding of the company in 2017. What were those early conversations like as you guys were getting the company started? Yeah, I mean, a lot. Obviously, you know, founding a company is not easy. You know, a million things to figure out. And I'd say the interesting thing is there's it's sort of an insurmountable challenge. You know, the world knows nothing about you and you're trying to, you know, build something from nothing. So a lot of what we talked about is just, you know, starting with what would have been useful to us and then trying to, you know, quickly go from there to how can we talk about this to other folks that they understand it quickly. And then also figuring out, you know, what early things can we deliver value on, right? Because you're you're not going to be able to build a giant scalable platform out of the gate. So what are sort of the incremental wins for the customers that, and, you know, a lot of what we did is iterate on what those should be and go to folks that we knew in our network or, you know, even push out of our network, which is actually often where we had the best conversations to showcase what you know, we could do and say, you know, hey, is this nugget, is this nugget interesting to you? And where'd you decide to begin then? Yeah, so the good question. So, I mean, I think when we were first starting and, you know, had this idea that synthetic data could really change the world, 
you know, it's a very important point of where do you start, right? Because you can't change the entire world at once, even if you're right, which, you know, there's always a big question of if you're right, but assuming you are, you know, where do you start? And so we talked to a lot of folks and what we concluded was that the best place to start was really helping developers. Obviously developers are a, you know, massive part of the tech ecosystem. And there were a lot of data challenges there. The interesting thing that we found is that synthetic data could solve a lot of those challenges quite well. You basically for developers, what we really thought about initially was preserving the graph of the data so that, you know, you can run your application on top of that data. When you go into the data science world or, you know, analytics world, the question changes a little bit and, you know, the graph may be important, but it's really also about relationships in the data, statistical relationships. And we didn't want to start there because our sense was that was a little bit more of a research problem and that, you know, to add that sort of nugget of value to a customer would require a much longer uncertain process. And that's where we began. So we, we ended up focusing on developers out of the gate. How long did it take until you started to really feel like there was a viable product and a, and a viable business here? Oh, man, I feel like it's asking that's like asking a parent, you know, when did your baby start sleeping through the night? You don't always remember. <laughs> that's very uh, my kid is still not sleeping through the night. So <laughs> don't stress me out. I have my first kid on the way. So that's not what I want to hear, Ian. <laughs> oh, it'll be smooth. You know, you'll pick up a few new hobbies, get a lot of rest. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would say I think. We started helping our earliest design partners within a few months. I think we had a product that someone who, you know, had no familiarity with us and had no reason to trust us at all, we, you know, would give us money for, I think within six to nine months is kind of my memory of how that went. And, you know, that's the point where we sort of felt like we could, you know, look someone in the eye and ask for money and it wasn't unreasonable. What phrases were you using to describe the technology then? Were you already using synthetic data or data? Or when did that start being a term that you used? Yeah, we started talking about that, I think, essentially at company founding. We do actually have a lot of thoughts there. It's not a straightforward category, partially because, you know, I think there's, you know, it's kind of like a geeky question that is exciting to us and not always exciting to everyone. But there's a big question around what is synthetic data? What is masked data? And, you know, data masking is often, I think, looked at as sort of like an easier, trivial operation and synthetic data is viewed as, you know, sort of this complex, more advanced operation, but the lines are often very blurry. I mean, I think there are some things that are obvious, obvious, like if you take a column of data and you redact it, you know, trivially, just null it out or something like that, that, that is masking your data that's, you know, doing some sort of trivial redaction. But what if you take that data and, you know, you replace it with data that looks somewhat similar, like it's a column of names, you replace it with things that look like names. Is that synthetic data? Is that mass data? I think it gets even more complicated if you take that column of names and then preserve some kind of relationship with those names to another column, let's say a gender column or something like that. And what is the threshold for sort of moving from masked to synthetic data? You know, and there's no one I think out there that has like an exact answer we have our thoughts, but we talk about synthetic data. And what we really like to do is actually talk more about the customer's problems and what do they need and what's the bar for them to 
be productive and get value out of the data that we're producing. And, you know, that's what we like to think about. What attributes of the data do they need as opposed to is this synthetic data, is this mass data? But, you know, for shorthand to help folks understand sort of the domain that we're talking about, yeah, synthetic data is something that we, we talk about all the time. And was that a phrase that you coined or is that a term that was being used and you really just ran with it? It's a term, I think it comes out of academia, actually. That's my sense. I mean, there's Wikipedia pages about it now. I wish I could take credit for coining it, but we call ourselves the fake data company because we think that's amusing. And in reality, you know, that's what all these things are, is there are various versions of fake data. So that's what I think we can claim credit for, is calling ourselves the fake data company. I, I can't claim credit for synthetic data. I think when you go back and look at all of the companies who are celebrated as category creators, most of them didn't just come up with that phrase and pull it out of nowhere. Like, yeah, they hijacked it from somewhere. Someone was already using it. Like Gainsight, I think is a, a very famous example. They didn't invent customer success as a category. They're celebrated as the category creator there, but they're the ones who just really were the loudest voice in the room and they you know, brought the whole profession and discipline and category forward. So sounds like it could be something similar here with synthetic data. For you, what are your views long-term on the category? Is that going to be your category or what do you want your category to be three, four or five years in the future? So I view synthetic data as kind of what I alluded to as a tool to enable, you know, customers to do things that they want to do. When I think of sort of three, four, five years out, yes, I think, you know, we will be in that synthetic data category, but I also suspect we will be pushing into broader categories around how customers operate with their data and, you know, really protect the security of their data in, in a broader sense and move their data. Because that's really what it's ultimately about. So we're now getting a, a big new feature out to our customers around making it possible to, you know, containerize their data. We're going to make it possible to synthesize databases, you know, move really large amounts of data really fast. So I think Synthetic data is, you know, kind of the first part of this, but the broader story is really around, you know, solving your data problems and making it really easy to work with secure data in a way that protects your customer's privacy, but also makes it easy to develop software, build models, and not spend a lot of painful time on the data challenges, which isn't where you want to be focusing your energy. And when it comes to your marketing philosophy, how do you think about that? This is something that we've learned about over time. You know, not all of us kind of came from the more technical side, even this, so there's four founders at Tonic, two of us on the business side, two of us are, you know, purely on the engineering side. So Carl and I are on the business side and, you know, we, you know, we came you know, from Palantir and did business development there, but obviously, you know, didn't do a ton of marketing. So it's something that we've learned. And I think, you know, what we've come to believe is that being generally honest and direct and also producing really high quality content is the best way to reach our audience. You know, we're, you know, the people that benefit from Tonic are, uh, you know, technical folks. And so I think they appreciate candor, they appreciate substance. So that's what we try to focus on. So, you know, we do blog posts that, you know, attach to open source projects that we think are genuinely useful to the community. We try to do blog posts that are actually instructive and, you know, help people level up. So that's really why, where we try to focus a lot of our effort, because generally we think that's valuable to the world and, you know, valuable to our customers. How do you think about ROI when you're investing in content? Well, you know, not getting into sort of like geeky marketing attribution stuff. Generally, yes, we run a business, right? Like we can't just produce content solely for charitable reasons. But, you know, I think, like I said, we try to make sure that it's high quality and generally is helpful. 
But then when we are trying to measure ROI, we do have, you know, attribution. We look at web traffic. We look at, you know, time on page. You know, there's a lot of different metrics we can look at to look at a piece of content and saying, does this look like this is generally valuable? And then, you know, obviously, you know, you can you can look for things like signups and, you know, other types of conversion metrics. What's the competitive landscape look like today for you? Yeah, good question. So there's different styles of competitors that we see. So we sell from companies that are to all from SMB all, all the way up to, you know, large enterprises. And depending on who we're talking to, we see different, different competitive dynamics. At the large enterprises, we typically see some of the older test data management folks out there and, you know, sort of the, you know, ones that have been around for a while. And, you know, generally, I think the conversation there is really about, you know, time to value and things like that. And then with, you know, more SMB and mid-market folks, we're typically, you know, seeing more contemporaneous startups and, you know, really there, you know, I think, again, it is a time to value conversation, but it's also a completeness of platform conversation. This show is brought to you by Frontlines Media, a podcast production studio that helps B2B founders launch, manage, and grow their own podcast. Now, if you're a founder, you may be thinking, I don't have time to host a podcast. I've got a company to build. Well, that's exactly what we built our service to do. You show up and host and we handle literally everything else. To set up a call to discuss launching your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. Now back to today's episode. What about your messaging? How have you seen that evolve over the last 12 months? From my conversations with other founders, they've had to make a lot of changes just as the, the market's undergone a lot of changes lately. Have you had major messaging changes? Oh, a little bit. I wouldn't say we've changed a core messaging. I mean, this, you know, we're still, you know, the value tonic still the value of tonic. It's building better software faster. It's, have, you know, protecting your customers' data. Like changing that would require changing a lot about the product. But what we have helped, you know, our customers work through in, is, you know, building business cases, right? So talking about ROI in a more direct way, helping folks understand, you know, there are ways you can use Tonic to do cost savings, things like that. So helping customers, you know, sort of think through those business cases has been something that we've pushed on. And then, you know, I'd say, Outside of sort of the economic environment, we have actually launched some products that do help with Gen AI and things like that, which obviously that that is new messaging for us. But, you know, those are also new products. Can you share any numbers that highlight the traction and growth that you're seeing? You know, generally, that's something that we keep confidential, but we have hundreds of customers across industries with especially, you know, folks in financial services and healthcare. But I think that one of the things that's really been exciting for us is we have seen Tonic be a really ubiquitous problem for all developers. And so that's been, you know, really, I think, something that was actually surprising to us and also really reassuring as we think sort of about the future of Tonic. And looking through the website, I see some logos that everyone will recognize. We have the NHL, we have eBay, we have Flexport, Bill.com. If you reflect on the success of landing logos like that, what do you think you've gotten right as an organization? I think... You know, the most important thing you can do with a customer that's, you know, significantly larger than you is, you know, do the things you say you're going to do. They're obviously going to have more complexity than you likely do. You know, if you are a 50 or 100 person company and you're working with a 10,000 person company, they're going to have a lot more complexity. And I think that's something that we were fortunate that we had experience there. You know, my co-founders, like, you know, from Pounder, we saw a lot of that. I also worked at Tableau with one of my other co-founders. So, you know, we saw what it looks like to solve data problems at very large organizations at large scale. And so I think we were able to have those conversations 
But generally, I think for anyone trying to work with a much larger organization, it's, you know, sort of having the respect that, you know, the complexity is going to be a lot higher and that you need to, you know, if you say you're going to do something, you're going to have to do that in that complex environment and do it at high quality. One thing that really caught my attention when I first heard about you probably a year ago is your brand is fun. And just looking through the website, you know, check out who's faking it, the hashtag real fake data community. When we got on our call, you had the fake data company hat. So you have all this fun stuff in place. Talk to me about making that decision. Were there any people on the team or internally, did you wrestle with that idea? Like, should we really like embrace this and like be memorable or like, should we just stay more serious and you know just focus on the product? Like, was that a debate that you had to decide on like how much fun the brand would represent? It totally was a debate because as you asked about, we you know we work with some large, serious organizations. We're working in an area that touches risk and security and privacy. So it, it, it's a serious area, right? Like it's something that we have to, you know, we have to take very seriously and it's very serious for our customers. But I think early on, we just felt that this was authentic to us. You know, starting companies very hard. I think having a sense of humor and not taking yourself too seriously and accepting that there's going to be challenges is really helpful. And we felt that having a little levity in our brand was, you know, very authentic to us. And, you know, as you said, I think generally the biggest challenge for any company is, you know, being noticed and, you know, being detected in this very noisy world. So we felt that not only was it authentic, but that, you know, our biggest risk was not being not serious enough, but actually not being known. So, you know, I think there was a little bit of heartburn, but it was a fairly easy decision. Have you had any situations come up where you're like, oof, maybe we shouldn't have gone with this fake data idea? I can't think of anything. I think as long as we wear collared shirts, we're okay. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) What about community? So I had mentioned community there. What role has community played in your growth and your success? A good amount, you know, a lot of our customers have found us for referrals. We've even had customers where they were working somewhere, they moved somewhere else and they brought us into the new company. So I think reputation and community has been incredibly important. We have a handful of open source projects I mentioned that also folks are, we have some engagement on. And so, yeah, it's been really great, you know, getting to know all of our customers and, you know, especially it's always very humbling to have someone you know, bring you into a new organization after working with you somewhere else. I mean, that's something that, you know, I think it always makes us feel really happy and confident that we are helping the people that we think we're helping. As I mentioned there in the intro, you've raised 45 million to date. What have you learned about fundraising throughout this journey? I think there's a few things that I would say uh, to anyone sort of considering it is, I mean, obviously it's the best way to move really fast, right? It's, you get access to capital that you would otherwise not have. And so that that's, you know, I think that is the big lever for any founder. I mean, obviously it also comes with a set of responsibilities and expectations around it. And I think that's something that we take very seriously, recognizing that, you know, you're taking money from someone who believes you're going to do a certain set of things and, you know, your reputation is now on, you know, doing those things. So that's something that I think everyone should keep in mind. The other thing I think to keep in mind is that it's helpful to build a relationship. That's what we've always found is that everyone we've raised from, we've gotten to know for a really long time. And then I think that builds a degree of trust that's really helpful for both sides. So you go into it with, I think, a really good set of expectations out of what the next year is going to look like. And obviously no one can, you know, there's always going to be uncertainty. I mean, obviously, you know, we raised our series A shortly after 
COVID happened and uh, that was unplanned, but the relationship had been building long before that. So we were getting to know Glenn and Oren over at GGV for a long time before that. And so that, so that was really helpful. And, you know, but obviously there was no way to predict COVID, at least for us. I don't know, maybe there's someone out there, some genius out there who did, who could predict it. But uh, for us, it was a surprise. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I'd say that, you know, I'd say that would be sort of my two cents for anyone is, you know, build a relationship, build that mutual trust. And then, you know, what any surprises could come up will be more blips than, uh, you know, really hard mountains to climb. Both from a fundraising perspective and just a company building perspective, how important do you think it is to be in the Bay Area? It's hard to say. I mean, I've always been here, so I can't say how hard it would have been to not be here, although I suspect it would have been very hard, especially initially with raising our seed around. A lot of that came from meeting folks that we knew that were out here. Also, you know, landing initial customers, we were able to have a ton of meetings out here because of the tech ecosystem. So, you know, especially, you know, we're in dev tools, obviously, right? And so that made it really helpful. I can't say what it would have been like to try to fundraise sitting in another city, but the fact that I can go to coffees with people, you know, and have these casual conversations does enable kind of that relationship building. So for me, I personally wouldn't do it anywhere else, but I can't specifically say, you know, I haven't actually done the A-B test, but I can point to a lot of things that feel like I would only be able to get that experience here. Let's imagine you were starting the company again today from scratch. Based on everything you've learned so far, what would be the number one piece of advice you'd give yourself? Listen to your early customers and that activity is more valuable than planning, especially early on. Final question. Let's zoom out three to five years into the future. What's the big picture vision here? Yeah, like I was alluding to, I think it's really about basically making it so that developers, data scientists, those folks don't spend time on data problems. So, you know, for me, Tonic will be a success when people are able to focus entirely on the intellectual challenges of their work and not on the painful, you know, data privacy, data cleanliness, data portability challenges that plague so much of, you know, work that touches data today. All right, Ian, we are up on time, so we're going to have to wrap. Before we do, if there's any founders that are listening in that want to follow along with your journey, where should they go? Check us out on our website, tonic.ai. We'd love to hear from you. Awesome. Ian, thanks so much for taking the time. All right, thank you. All right, keep in touch. This episode of Category Visionaries is brought to you by Frontlines Media, Silicon Valley's leading podcast production studio. If you're a B2B founder looking for help launching and growing your own podcast, visit frontlines.io slash podcast. And for the latest episode, search for Category Visionaries on your podcast platform of choice. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you on the next episode. 